the best way to assure there will be a hopeful future is like not waiting for someone else to solve it. Just like, ah, someone will work on that. It's like, no, you will work on that. You can do it. And if it looks like impossible and huge, it's more challenging and rewarding. This is In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Suchi Srinivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital, business, and technology. This episode, we're speaking with Mariana Vasconcelos, CEO and founder of AgroSmart, the largest agricultural data group in Latin America. AgroSmart uses data and technology to help farmers become more productive, sustainable, and climate resilient. In 2022, Mariana appeared on Bloomberg's list of most influential people in Latin America and has even secured a coveted place on Forbes 30 Under 30 list. On top of that, she's recognized as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. Here's Suchi's conversation with Mariana. I'm Mariana Vasconcelos. I am Brazilian, 31 years old, a tech entrepreneur in climate and food systems. You grew up now in a farming family, and I'd love to hear about, you know, how that influenced you, uh, your worldviews as you were growing up. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your growing up years in that environment. Well, I think first it was very fun. I'm a big fan of nature and I love being around the animals and the trees and forests. So it was very healthy, I think, to build that connection with Earth. On the other hand, I would say farming is very challenging. There's a lot of ups and downs. It's an open sky industry that uh, has a lot of risks. So there's a lot of uncertainty on the income. And I always heard my my dad like struggle on how to decide over things, how to prepare to the unknown, how to adapt to the changes that were required from him to do better, to do more. And in the past, there was this understanding that young generations to leave the fields because they would have to look for better opportunities outside. And today I see the opposite. Like there is actually a lot of opportunities back in the field. Now tell us a little bit about AgroSmart, this organization that you founded. You know, what does it do? What kind of problems does it solve? We're keen to hear more. So AgroSmart leverage climate solutions so we can understand better and mitigate financial risks helping both food systems and nature to thrive. We help farmers and corporations in the supply chain to have better data and understand better in-field problems. So how they should operate during the season in regards to climate, adopting better practice that allows them to be more efficient, more profitable and more resilient. Can you give us an example now of how you're using that technology to help both farmers and corporations, like uh, make it come to life for us? In the farmer side, for example, we monitor crops with sensors, with satellite, and by engaging with the information the farmers share with us, and then we transform that data models that helps them to decide when to sow, when to irrigate and how much, to understand if there are risk of diseases, when to spray, if there is any climatic risk of fires, risk of frost. So we help them in the day-to-day to understand how climate is changing and what should I do? Like, what should I do now so I can become more resilient? 
And on the food supply chain, then we support corporations. For example, we just launched a case in the beginning of the year with Fruchi, that is an acai, which is like a Brazilian berry um, company in the Amazon forest. So we help them to trace their ESG KPIs. So to understand deforestation, social conditions of the workers in terms of gender, income, child labors, labor conditions, and also on the environmental side, like what is the carbon footprint? What is the water consumption? How are uh, the community adopting good practices in agriculture or not? So they can evaluate better how good they are doing in their scope three ESG KPIs. And then we can help them based on that to use the other platform on the climate side to improve it. Wow, that sounds so very ambitious, but yet at the same time, so in moment for now. What inspired you to found this organization? What inspired you to go after this problem? Why did you do this? So coming from farming families, I grew up very closely to the daily challenges in the field. So I understood how is that uncertainty of not knowing what to do. So I wanted to bring data as a way to bring more safety and make better decisions in the field. I was applying data to other industries, including oil and gas and environmental discontamination, helping companies in the fourth industrial revolution journey. And then at some point, we were like, why we are not doing this in agriculture? That we know the problem, it matters to our community, it matters to our region in Latin America, that we are the largest producers and exporters of so many crops in the world. So we could build something that could be relevant worldwide. I love how full circle that is, taking your experiences when you were growing up and, you know, you talking about the resilience, right, especially uh, for your dad as a farmer. And then you grow up and found this organization that that ties it back to everything that you experience and perhaps the problems that you saw, your family experience, as well as, you know, all other parts of it. So I think that's just so lovely. So now stepping back, I mean, you've spent all these years understanding, obviously, all of the angles in the industry from the corporations to the farmers and the value chain. What do you think are some of the key issues in the world today around sustainable agriculture? You know, talk to us a little bit about that. Before I talk about it, I just want to make a funny comment on the full circle side. But in theory, I was not the one to do it, right? So when I was raised, like, I am the girl, I have two brothers. Definitely, I was not the one supposed to be back and working in agriculture because that was not for me, no? So it was hard for my dad to see me go back and take over the farm and stuff because I was like, no, that's not for you. I loved being a child, but the responsibility itself, I thought it was very boring. I was also not super engaged on staying and working with that. But then when the, I brought the tech perspective, then it became cool. And against my dad's first uh, will, I was the one who stayed in farming. I have to ask you, <laughs> how do they feel about you now? Is your dad proud? Yes. Now he's feel, he feels proud. In the beginning, it was like a lot of, are you sure you want to do that? But you don't need to do that. You can do something else. Or you can do that, but you could also have a real job. And I was like, that, but that's he's a real job. Now they feel very proud. And my dad helps me to like make propaganda and talk to other farmers about it. So it's nice. That's such a lovely story about coming full circle, as you said. And it's heartwarming to hear that your dad has come around full circle and is helping you, as you said, right, in this work. So, yeah, sorry, you were going to talk about, you know, your observations on the key issues around sustainable agriculture in the world today. 
So if we look into agriculture in general, we are transitioning because we need to increase food production in almost 70% to feed almost 10 billion people in 2050. Most of that increase of food production should come from technology improvements because we can't just keep expanding land. So we need to do more in the same place. However, we already have degraded soil. Uh, we have a scarcity of water. Like today, only 20% of crops worldwide are irrigated, but they produce 40% of the food. So there is this need to use more water in order to produce more food. But 70% of the fresh water is already used in irrigation. And about half of this is wasted because we don't really know how much to use it, when to use it, and so on. And irrigation is also a powerful tool to fight climate change. So climate dynamics is affecting the way farmers behave because a lot of agriculture is based out of science. So you do research, you learn what that crop needs and how it works in that specific region. But then everything we knew about it changes. The climate dynamics of that place changes. The crop resistance to different diseases changes. So farmers need to relearn again. And that's changing the demographics of crops. So like where you use it to grow something is no longer available because it's too hot, right? And you have to change it somewhere else. So uh, the occurrence of extreme weather events like hurricanes, floods, like drought is also increasing and affecting farmers' capacity to produce. So agriculture is reaching this tipping point where it needs to change, both because agricultural activity influences climate, but also because climate influences agriculture. So about one third of greenhouse gases emissions are about agriculture. But agriculture can not only mitigate the problem, but also be part of the solution. That was a pretty intimidating list of issues <laughs> in, in sustainable agriculture. But so I was about to ask you, what do you then think are the key, you know, levers to or the main ways to get to agricultural sustainability globally? And I think you started addressing a few of them, but maybe just, you know, fill out your thoughts on that. Love to hear. And if you feel overwhelmed, imagine the farmer. It's a very sobering realization. I can certainly say, you know, makes me look at the food on my plate with new respect, to be honest. Data is fundamental because everything that we measure can be managed. So we need to understand more where we are. So diagnose, what's your footprint? What's going on? Like, how can you improve that scenario? So measuring, so you can set new goals. That's where the world is going on becoming net zero and improving the usage of water and improve income on the farming families working across the supply chain. So defining that is very important, but we need to scale the adoption of technologies. And for that, we need to work on three main verticals and challenges. The first one is infrastructure and connectivity. It's like we can't adopt tech to measure, to improve, unless we have internet. And in emerging countries, that's not a widely available option. Still today in Brazil, only like 27% of the, the farms have internet in the field, not only in the house, but in the field where we need to collect information from. The second point is education. We are talking about a whole mindset shift that starts with digital inclusion, like how do I use the phone? How can I read? And how can I know basics on agronomic so I can make the better decisions and less financing? So like there's very few money being allocated 
in transitioning, in supporting farmers to buy technology and to adopt new practices. We already have challenges on credit in general for buying inputs and allowing them to work well as a business. So that's the three main areas and pillars where I think we need to work together and drive innovation to overcome so we can scale all of the cool tech that can help us solve the problems. What makes you hopeful that we will get there as, as a species, as a race? You know, yesterday I was in a talk here at Stanford about applied hope and how that's important. It's like that you believe there will be a good future because you want to build it. So making it tangible and just choosing the next step and is the best way to assure that we will be a hopeful future is like not waiting for someone else to solve it. Just like, ah, someone will work on that. It's like, no, you will work on that. You can do it. And if it looks like impossible and huge, it's more challenging and rewarding. So I think we, my founding team, myself, my other co-founders, we like hard problems. And I think... That's what makes us hopeful because we meet so many other innovators and people that actually care. My generation is a generation that cares where food comes from, how how they are treating the people in there, how is the environment taking being taken into consideration. So I think that gives me hope because I see other people care. And I feel we can do even just a little. Everyone can do something about it. That's so heartwarming, Mariana. That that just made my day. It gives me goosebumps here. <laughs> so shifting a little bit, let's talk a little bit now about you, your journey, learning and growing. Now, you, you like to learn. You're always kind of looking for new things to do and to learn from. What is your motivation? What keeps you motivated to learn uh, new things? And how do you make the time and space for this learning? Would love to kind of hear you talk about that. I like the learning on the way path. So it's like, depending on the challenge that I have now, then I will sit and I will look for content. I will apply to courses so I can solve that pain that I have now. But I have, I am hungry for learning. I think that comes from parents' educations, even with my husband. It's like, we measure progress in terms of development. I'm quite competitive. <laughs> so I feel like I cannot be left behind and I cannot lose. So when I see other people doing stuff that I don't know, I'm like, I have to know more. I have to be able to talk in the same level. I have to be at the table. So I think that's a good motivator to keep one going and learning more. How do you make room in your schedule? You know, what are some of the practical things you do so that you can get after that uh, learning goal of yours? I prefer immersive and full-time experiences. So I prefer to do a little, but very intense. I read every day, like a lot of articles. I really like articles and papers because they are more condensed knowledge. So I like everything that is condensed. It's like, how do I find who have done it before? What they are talking about it? I follow a bunch of newsletters in my email. So I follow up like on FinTech, on AgTech, uh, on climate, on sustainability, on private equity and, and VC. So I just like to know what people are thinking so I can keep up with them. And that's very condensed. You've certainly not let yourself, at least on the face of it, be intimidated by any of the situations that you faced. But, you know, often women don't feel qualified to apply for certain job roles, to take up a bigger challenge, you know, to go after that promotion, because our self-assessment 
of who we are and what we're capable of tends to be more conservative. Um, it feels like, you know, you've got a lot to teach our audience here about how to go after that bigger challenge, you know, be hungry enough for it. So number one, I'm assuming you've experienced it, but you should validate this for us. Have you experienced this feeling intimidated and not perhaps hesitating to go after that bigger challenge? And what would you say to women who feel nervous about taking that leap of faith to go after the bigger challenge? I think that's very important to dismythify because I don't think anyone is just self-confident enough to always trust themselves. I feel like an imposter, I would say 90% of the time. It's like, I'm never sure. I'm just so scared and so afraid of take the next step. And I constantly enter in myself in my crisis. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe I don't know enough. Maybe I'm not good. And people will destroy me. And if I fail now, then I will say I have been an imposter my whole life. And I enter in those dramas. But I have a support network, mostly my mom, my brother, and my husband. That I just, like, I just make all the drama to them. And they say, no, like you were crazy and it doesn't matter. And you were good anyway and you're loved anyway. And you can try and you can make mistakes. Just do it. So I think the way I handled it always is never be beaten by fear. It's not that fear doesn't exist. On the contrary, I'm terrified, but I still do it. And thanks, I think, to that support network. And I try to pass that on to other people that I care about. And sometimes that rolls in birds and it happens to my family members as well. And it's like, just do it. I'm here. Like, and you are good enough and you're going to do it. And I think we women need to hear that more maybe than others. Uh, and that's why we are here. And it's important to have ecosystems and that network that will tell that to you. The importance of the ecosystem and the network to support you, to validate, to to, I guess, give you the validation that you can do it. And we will still love you. I heard you say that too. And I think it's so important because a lot of us associate our own self-worth with the success or failure of this enterprise and make it bigger than it needs to be. I think those are really good words from you, Mariana. Is there anything you want to share with our listeners that I haven't asked you about that would be valuable to them or you want to share? Well, I think it's like, Sometimes we look to someone that is very successful or what we consider the definition of success because I don't think there is one static point or definition of success. I think everyone's journey and the, more, the closer I get to people that I would say, ah, this person is successful, is actually in the end like a heartbeat, like ups and downs all the time. So we sometimes try to idealize the journey and think that people just had everything right in their life and they're very successful. And actually, they are a collection of a lot of great achievements, but also a lot of failures that is good to know because we think like, what's wrong with us? Why our thing doesn't work out? And it's like, actually, they also have a lot of things that didn't work out. And the, 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 the journey is what matters in the end. It's like if you zoom out, you will see that you have progressed in your life and you continue to progress independently of those mistakes and pieces of the journey. So I think not idealizing success. I also think... Many times we don't talk enough about sexual harassment. That is something people just pretend don't exist and it does. And I just think girls be prepared for it because it will happen. And maybe if our grandmothers and mothers and aunts would have told us clearer, I think we would be more prepared to face. And I think we just try to hide it because we are so afraid. And I don't necessarily think we should be causing, accusing and stuff. But I think we, among us, we should talk about it more often 
uh, so we are more prepared. As we step back, reflect on your career, tell us, Mariana, about a moment where you felt in your element. I have been thinking about it, and I don't know if I can describe one moment, but more a state. I think I feel in my element, in my flow, when I'm connecting, connecting knowledge and connecting people. I discover that one of my strengths is getting things from different places and putting them together. So understanding how to merge agronomy, meteorology, hardware, software, business people together in one problem, connecting nerds with extroverts and making people find how they can grow better together. And usually it's where I am able to leverage that. Even sometimes for myself, sometimes for others, like I feel very proud when I make matches that work. And I think that's where I feel on my best, when I'm able to connect dots and people. That was my conversation with Mariana. Corinne, what stands out to you the most about that conversation? She was a fascinating individual. And I think um, I loved so much about her just being so excited to get away from the farm and like strike out on her own. And then and then here it is like full circle. And she comes back to this thing that's sort of deeply embedded in her. And I think it makes me kind of think a little bit about my childhood. Like you're sitting at your dinner table and having all these chats and it just goes in. It's like osmosis. You don't realize it. And she's just the perfect person to go and innovate in this realm. And I just think that's so beautiful that she has tapped into that history in herself and that's just really benefiting communities today. So, Suchi, what were some of the key takeaways that you had from your conversation with Mariana? I don't think I appreciated actually how much is entailed in getting that plate of food in front of us, you know, three times a day or whatever it is. Like, what's the system behind it? How many players are there? What data changes hands? And most fundamentally, how can tech really modernize the system and bring about greater efficiencies? I mean, we're hitting whatever, nine plus billion people on this planet, and we've got a very finite food supply here. And so I just was in such awe and respect of her for even attempting to take up this problem. Just listening to her speak, it felt so vast and immense. And then for her to be brave enough to pick it up, but then actually make a dent in it quite significantly, I was just getting a ton of goosebumps and feeling really inspired, to be honest. Well, that's all for today. This has been In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. Join us every episode to hear meaningful conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. Thank you so much for listening. 